What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And before I introduce this next guest, as some of you loyal listeners have noticed, I took the last couple days off. So this is something that I've been working on because a lot of you know I've been posting like five episodes a week. I read hundreds of books a year and I want to interview all the authors and everything. But I've been slowly trying to catch up and dial it back just a little bit. So I'm not a thousand percent sure on the set schedule. There will still be at least one or two episodes a week, like worst case scenario, one episode. Uh, but yeah, I have been scheduling some more bonus episodes. Some of you heard the episode the other day with Virginia Heffernan. Uh, she's a journalist and a writer, and we talk about sobriety and staying sane during all this craziness and all that. So I'll be doing some more of those. But anyways, best way to stay up to date so you don't miss anything is to make sure you're not only following and subscribe to the podcast, but make sure you're following me over on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul. Because when I dial back over here, it's because I'm working on some other projects. Like I write and, you know, I'm trying to get more into that and some other projects and stuff like that. So make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. All right. But anyways, today's amazing guest is Celeste Headley to talk about her brand new book that just came out this week called Speaking of Race. So at the time of releasing this, it's uh, November 3rd. And yesterday we just had the elections in Virginia and race and critical race theory. Everybody's talking about it and debating, you know, what happened in the elections in Virginia and all this other stuff. So I think this is a very timely episode and a very uh, relevant episode because Celeste's book is all about how do we talk about race with one another? All right. We've had so many conversations, so many authors on here talking about polar, uh, polarization, these divisive issues and everything. And Celeste put together this book to talk about like how we can talk about race in a rational, calm manner. All right. I wrote something on Substack the other day about how some of the CRT debates are going just off the rails and we're hearing the most extreme opinions. Some of it's misinformation and all that. But as many of you know, since I'm such a psychology nerd and I have so many people on here talking about, you know, group identity, evolutionary psychology and all that, like we're not going to get rid of the race conversation. Like that's just not going to happen. The whole colorblindness thing, all that, that's not going to happen. So how do we talk about race in a calm, mature manner? And that is exactly what Celeste's book is all about. It's a phenomenal book. There's so much in the book about, you know, one of my favorite practices, uh, which is mindfulness. And a lot of it has to do with emotionally regulating yourself when you have these conversations. So many people get heated and nothing gets accomplished. So I really, really enjoyed and appreciated this book. And I'm so glad I was able to sit down with Celeste and talk about this. And another reason why I was excited about this was because, uh, like myself, Celeste is actually half black and she's very light skinned. Me, I'm, you know, pretty white looking, you know? So it was really cool to be able to talk to somebody about, you know, being caught up in all these racial discussions when you're biracial and sometimes white passing. So it was cool to be able to talk with her about that. So yeah, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Celeste, grab a copy of this book. It's such a good book. It's so needed right now so make sure you check out those links down in the description all right but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with celeste headley about her brand new book speaking of race All right. Hello, Celeste. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for writing such an amazing book. So we're going to be talking about your newest book, Speaking of Race. So for, for the people of my audience who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you give us a little bit of your background? Um, sure. I'm a, a trained opera singer who got into public radio as first a classical music host and then a reporter and um, host for many NPR programs for 26 years now. Mm. Um, I did a TED talk in 2015 that went super viral. And then I have written three books now. The first one was We Need to Talk. The second one was Do Nothing. And then now Speaking of Race. 
Yeah. Yeah, you are. Jeez, I didn't even realize your background was that extensive. That's <laughs> that's awesome. So what what made you switch like to to writing about these these topics? Was it something that you noticed like in the in the world in the climate or well, I mean the TED Talk um the the prompt for the TED Talk was uh what is going wrong in the world? Tell us what's going wrong in the world and then tell us how to fix it. Mm. And um, honestly, I didn't think it would be of that much interest to anybody. I thought <laughs> most people would find it to be a pretty boring topic, but I'm like, well, I'm a journalist. I see how badly conversations are going. Mm -hmm. I see that people don't want to talk to people who don't agree with them. And I actually know how to fix this. Thing. <laughs> yeah. So this is something I, I do know how to fix. So then I, I started talking about it and it turned out, I mean, I think I haven't, looked in a long time i think the ted talk has like 26 million views or something mm. so clearly this was something that people were not only interested in but needed to find help on yeah absolutely and maybe maybe you can help me with this celeste because i've been i, I think about this stuff a lot and whenever i have authors on i'm always like who is who's going to read this book and maybe it's because of my marketing background as well i'm like who is the ideal person to get this in front of but you you start out the book like talking about like your optimism right and race is obviously a very difficult topic to discuss so when you're writing this or even from your experience like since the virality of the ted talk who is the type of person that is going to pick up this this particular book, speaking of race, because when I when I think about it, like for example, I've had authors on here who write about uh, people who are science deniers, right? And yeah. I, I can't imagine someone being like, you know what? I deny science, and now I'm going to read a book on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. So, so when I look at this, I, I don't imagine someone being like, I am, you know, I, I'm terrible at talking about race. I'm always fighting with people, but I'm not in that world. So you may you probably have a better idea of that. Who is the type of person? that is really interested in this stuff? Um, I mean, obviously it's going to be uh, people of, of color who have to have these conversations all the time mm. um, and maybe have gotten frustrated. You know, there was a, a great book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Love that be, book. Yeah, I'll be paraphrasing that. Um, so it's definitely for them because this is sort of help to get past that frustration. But the ideal audience is who you asked for. And frankly, it's the people who think they're, white people especially, who think they're good on race, but can't, either don't want to talk about it, or they have people in their life where they're like, oh, it's no point. There's no point talking mm -hmm. to this person. Um, it's also like, I because of the conversation we're having today, I re-upped this Twitter thread um, that came out of a conversation in the in the park with a woman who's like, well, you know, racism is really systemic. There's not yeah. a lot I can do as one person. And this book is also for them because there's so much that you can do. And it all begins with this. It begins with people conversing with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and, it you know, it doesn't even have to be a debate and it doesn't have to be super serious and and dreadful <laughs> like yeah you can have a conversation about race that's that's light yeah absolutely and celeste let me tell you one of the reasons i love your book so i i am an audiobook listener right but when i get mm -hmm. review copies like your your amazing publicist like sent me a review copy i get a pdf version and then i have an app that like turns it like you know uh text to speech right and it's very robotic so one of the reasons I love your book is like when that app can talk to me like a robot and I can hear like the compassion and the tolerance still, I'm like, <laughs> now this is a good book. And that's one of the things I love because sometimes, uh, you know, the, the books on these topics can come off like preachy and yeah. things like that. But yours is very tolerant. You talk a lot about patience and everything, but you know. I, being a psychology nerd, like I, I love how you kind of like kick things off with like our biases and you talk a lot about how our brain responds and everything. And for everybody listening, because I don't think people understand this enough, can you kind of discuss how we, we get very defensive and we don't even realize it if somebody says like, hey, what you just said might be a little racist or whatever. And that kind of like fight or flight that we jump into. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you very much. Um, I try really hard to keep my, my readers in mind when I'm writing. I mean, it's one of the things I learned as a journalist is to keep 
in in my head, the audience that's listening, and to be as non-judgmental and human and kind as possible. Um, but yeah, in terms of defensiveness, you know, there's this old cliche that when um, people talk about race, the black people get mad and the white people get defensive. Um, it all stems from this idea that being called a racist is the worst thing that could be said of you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, when that's one of the reasons I start the book by saying, you are racist. Let's just accept that before we go <laughs> any further. You are, you know, we haven't, we haven't been able to find any person on the planet yet who does not make assumptions about people uh, subconsciously based on their perceived race when they first meet them. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea that uh, if, if you are revealed to be in some way biased or racist, it, it's, it kind of um, ruins your credibility on everything, mm -hmm. right? This idea that if you're racist, well, then that means you probably did horrible things to people of color <laughs> yeah. in order to get where you are in life. If you're racist, that means um, I've even heard people as I tried to, you know, untangle their logic, heard people who somehow believe that being called racist means that they actually did have white privilege, which is mm -hmm. So weird because a white yeah. person doesn't get the chance to opt out of white privilege. Like, <laughs> even if you hate it, even if you're like, this is awful that I get a privilege based on my my race, you you there's no opting out. Yeah. Like, you're yeah. gonna get it whether you like it or not. So it's this this defensiveness comes because psychologically speaking, uh, um any attack these days is most likely going to be a verbal attack. And for human beings, for homo sapiens, our, our position in society is the most important thing. Mm. Like our belonging, our rank, you know, um, and it, when it comes to our inherent needs, uh, belonging is the very first need that we have after food, shelter and water. Mm -hmm. That's how important it is to us that we have standing in our community right? It's survival. And so therefore, when someone is attacking your standing in a community, of course, it puts you into a defensive mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting uh, because you, you discuss a bit about, you know, privilege and things like that. And recently I had a conversation for an upcoming episode with uh, Dr. Tracy Baxley about mm. like, social justice parenting. And we, we discussed like privilege and, and it's difficult for all of us, like no matter who you are, you know, like we're, we're a multitude of things, right? Like yeah. whether that privilege comes from the family we were, we were born into, whether it's the color of our skin, whether it's, you know, the gender, you know, whatever it is, like we have these different forms, but you know, it's, it's like, the conversations around privilege, around race. And I think you mentioned this in your book. It's it's like difficult for people when discussing race to kind of see this spectrum where if you were to say, hey, what you said was kind of racist, some people immediately interpret it, uh, interpret that as I'm calling you a hood wearing Klansman. Right? <laughs> yeah. Why why do you think that people don't see the nuance and the the spectrum? of these things, like the difference between like a microaggression and someone who's like holding a tiki torch and marching in Charlottesville. You know what I mean? Honestly, I think it's because we avoid the conversation too much. Mm. I mean, this is why in the book I talk about exposure therapy, which as a psychology nerd, you'll know, yeah. is a super useful and effective way of treating people's anxieties and fear. Um, and I honestly, I think if we were talking about this more, if we were saying, if we were constantly calling out microaggressions, they wouldn't be so big mm -hmm. anymore. It's it's like, I'm dating myself, but there's this old movie um, from the Brat Pack called St. Elmo's Fire. Mm -hmm. And and there's a, a joke in there where one of their moms, every time she says the word cancer, she whispers it, <laughs> right? And and it it creates this idea that somehow that's shameful to talk about. Like you're not supposed to say that out loud. And this is sort of the same thing with racist or mm -hmm. microaggression or discriminatory or biased. Mm -hmm. So it's like if we can just get over this and realize that this is part of us as human beings, our bias is part of us. Mm -hmm. It's not going away. Yeah. And just make it a part of the normal conversation, we'd stop thinking that saying, oh, um, saying, oh, wow, I love black people. They're so good at sports. That's racist. But mm -hmm. obviously it's not the same thing as a Klansman. Mm -hmm. 
we yeah. can we can start to get over that if we just talk about it more. Yeah, it's you know one of one of my favorite things that uh, you, you discuss in the book is about microaggressions because it's difficult to discuss because you have people who are like, oh, you're a snowflake, you're getting too sensitive, you're being too sensitive and stuff. And you know, you talk a lot about like perspective taking in the book too. But when you talk about microaggressions, you say it's like this death by a thousand cuts, right? Or yeah. or you relate it to like that passive aggressive person in your life. Like they're not being like a full on straight up in your face, like jerk to you, but it's those little things and they add up over time. You know, what I mean, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I think everyone can understand that, mm-hmm. which I think is what you're saying. Like whether, I- even if it's not racially motivated, if you're a white person, you can understand somebody in your family. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a friend who just mm-hmm. makes little offhanded remarks that sort of cut. Yeah. And over the course of years, that's actually quite damaging to your psyche. We're, yeah. we're getting to learn more and more about how much damage that does. And, and microaggressions in particular are, have been shown in, in research to be just as damaging oh, cumulatively mm-hmm. as overt racism or sexism. So they're not to be taken lightly. And frankly, they need to be interrupted and, and confronted every single time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my my background's in mental health. Like, you know, uh, I'm a recovering drug addict and, you know, I'm all about like therapy and recognizing, you know, traumatic childhoods and things like that. And, you know, something uh, that I think about is like someone who grew up in a in a verbally abusive household, not even physically abusive, right? It's those little things adding up over time. And people say, you like, even if it's your parents or whoever it is saying things to you, they kind of snowball. And eventually by the time you're an adult, you're messed up and you don't even realize it, you know? So calling these things out and addressing them, they can kind of nip them in the butt. But even my girlfriend, uh, you know, she's pointed out things to me. She's like, hey, Chris, like that comes up, that could come off a little sexist. You know what I mean? And it's made me stop and think. I don't get defensive. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that, you know, and I've kind of altered it and, you know, and all that stuff. But um, one of the things that made me excited to talk to you uh, was that we're both mixed. We're both biracial. And Mm -hmm. I don't talk to many people <laughs> who can relate to that experience uh, because I look, I look white as hell. Um, and one of the things that you discuss about being in this kind of position is uh, I, I kind of think of it as like being undercover where, yeah. where people don't realize that you're mixed and they say some really racist they stuff. They sure so, do. So what's, Maybe you can help me because I am trying to get better at it. Like I've had people straight up drop like the end bomb with like a hard R in the worst way possible in front of me. Um, And I, you know, those instances, I'm like, hey, by the way, so how have you kind of dealt with that with people not realizing? Because they they really do get awkward once you say, hey, by the way, I'm, you know what I mean? So um, when I was younger, I did not always confront that. Um, I, I mean, and I honestly, I tried to be as honest as possible about my own evolution, just so that people don't think I'm trying to tell you how you should go about mm. this. But when I was younger, I, I didn't. Um, and when I got to like my mid, actually, it was probably around when I became a mother. So like 25, 26, something like that. Um, I, I, I would try with as light a tone as possible to say, um, uh, you know, that was, that was racist or <laughs> I'm black. <laughs> you may not be able to tell, but that's hurtful. Yeah. And I try, I try to avoid the word offensive just because of the way it, it offensive makes it sound as though this is, is objectively offensive. And everybody who was of that race would be offended. Mm. I can't speak for anybody, but me. So mm-hmm. I say that offended me or that was hurtful. That hurt me. Um, and and again, this is something I have learned over time. I mean, I think I put an example in the book of my neighbor in Detroit who, um, you know, we lived in Gross Point Park, which is historically very racist against both blacks and Jews, which is mm, what I am. Yeah. Um, but right on the border with Detroit, which is a chocolate city. Yeah. And um, he was going on vacation and he said, hey, can you get my mail for me? Because and then, of course, he whispers. I don't want those people to know that I'm going to be on away from my house. And he, he points towards Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, 
you know, just so you know, I'm black and broke. So I'm one of those people. And he goes, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean I said, it's okay. I'm going to get your mail. Absolutely. I just wanted to let you go. No. And he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not racist. And I said, you absolutely are, but I'm still going to get your mail. And I hope you have a good trip. Yeah. Uh, And I turned around and went back to weeding my yard. And that's sort of a a really common type of interaction that I have. If they, if they invite further discussion or they want me to tell them um, what it, you know, what it was, uh, I will. If I'm in a workplace, that becomes a different situation. I feel more of a responsibility to explain what it was mm. that was offensive and hurtful about that comment. But otherwise, I will leave it there. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I, I think about my childhood. Like one of, the, one of the experiences I had growing up, uh, I was with a good friend and his family. They're, you know, uh, very like white, conservative. Like they're the type sits around watches like Tucker Carlson all day and everything like that. But I remember, you know, growing up being like middle school, high school and everything. And uh, my friend's dad would like in front of me and he knew I was half black. He knew my dad was black. He met my dad. And he would say he would, he was regularly like separating black people into two groups, right? Like the good blacks and the bad blacks. And he'd always refer to me. He's like, but not you, Chris, like you're, you're one of the good ones, you know, why don't they act more like you and stuff like that? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, 14, 15 years old. I'm like, does this guy not <laughs> realize, you know, how this, how this sounds, you know? Um, I, I haven't I mean, seen James Baldwin. I am not your Negro. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's, it's those things. And, you know, obviously as I got older, you know, it, it's something I'm a little bit better at talking about, but something I'm, I'm curious about too, you, you touch on this in the book and, uh, this, this might be me asking a little advice, Celeste too. So both of us, very light, right? But we're mixed. Yes. Um, we, I, I've, I've experienced when getting into some of these conversations about racial issues in America or whatever, you know, there are, there are people within the black community who are like, you don't know, you're not allowed to talk about this. You have the privilege of being white because there's also, you know, the whole conversation around colorism and whatever, but you know, we, as people who are biracial, we have this kind of unique experience as well, but I see some of it being like the conversation being shut down. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced that where people said, you're not allowed to talk about this, even though you're trying to be compassionate and understanding and saying, I can't speak to your experience, but here are my thoughts on blank. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the, it has happened all the time. I'm a little bit lucky in that, um, my grandfather is a is a black icon, right? Like he's mm. a, a a very very famous composer and and is known as the dean of black composers. Mm-hmm. So it gives me a little bit of credibility, but frankly, um, not all the time and not quite enough. There are always people, both black and white, trying to tell me what they think my racial identity should be. Mm. Um, that has been difficult my whole life and it's it's hard enough when it's white people um it's worse when it's black people because they're um sometimes they believe rightly so that my lighter skin has made things easier for me of course it has Mm -hmm. absolutely but then that makes them think that they have a um psychological standing to tell me okay so i'm going to tell you what you can claim as your identity and Mm -hmm. of course no one can tell you what your identity is. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody. Uh, I, I can go into them, my long history of my my personal life, but frankly, that's not, I don't owe that to anybody. Um, and so it, when people try to tell me that, I'll say, listen, I'm going to tell you about my experience with race from my personal experience. And then I'm totally happy and actually eager to hear how that might differ from what you have seen. Um, and and I try to turn it into a sharing opportunity yeah. rather than a competition. Yeah, you yeah you actually do a great job uh, talking about that. I guess that segues into you know the next thing I wanted to ask you about because it's interesting because you know maybe even serendipitous. I was I was thinking about this topic a lot this morning, and then your book touched on it, right? And it's it's kind of this this thing that we see, not just with race, but it seems like with everything. And it's kind of who has it worse, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the biggest issues 
that we're grappling with. And you can see, you know, because there are plenty of um, middle America, you know, white farmers who feel like they have it terrible. And that's where they get really angry about hearing about, you know, uh, uh, the challenges that black people face. But how how do we kind of get get past this? Because as you're kind of talking about like, oh, you know, someone's saying, well, here's how bad I have it, right? And right. even with the recent controversy around the Dave Chappelle stand-up, I, I, I see the issues, but I also see this kind of conversation of who has it worse, the trans community or the Black community, right? And then you have, you know, misogyny versus uh, racism, right? Who has it worse, women or people of color? And, it, you know, it's all these, like, different battles kind of going on. And I think the reason I was thinking about this this morning, I was actually listening to a conversation between Barry Weiss and Ben Shapiro, right? They're both Jewish. Mm -hmm. They talk Jewish, a lot about yeah. anti-Semitism and everything like that. But right before talking about the issues with anti-Semitism, they were talking about woke culture and, you know, how some of these race issues are being overblown. Oh, I'm like, and I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. So what, what, from your perspective, what's going on with, with these, this like battle of who has it worse? I mean, it's perfectly natural. If you have siblings, <laughs> you, you understand this already. I mean, it's, we all are experts in the trials and tribulations we've been through. Mm -hmm. We are absolute experts in how difficult it has been for us. Our memory is good for the damage that has been done for us. It's, it's very good on the details about when people have wronged us. And we know next to nothing and remember very little about what other people have gone through. Mm -hmm. Right? If you've ever had a friend that you haven't talked to them in like six months and you say, hey, how's it going? And they say, well, you, you know, my mom died. And you're like, oh, shoot, yes. I'm sorry, yeah. right? Like yeah. that's how quickly we can remember absolute heartbreak in even our friends and people we care about. Mm -hmm. So it is perfectly natural um, that we, this is the availability heuristic, right? Yep. For those of us who are, are uh, nerds. Um, we are, it is perfectly natural to think we have had it harder than other people simply because we, we do not recall what they've been through. Mm -hmm. And so in order to, um, balance out that particular bias, you have to let other people tell you, it just means you are never going to be enough of an expert in other people's experience to be able to compare your own experience with theirs. Mm -hmm. Never. You will never be that, that kind of an expert. And so yeah. you have to let them tell you and you know i you know i'm a i'm a buddhist and basically the mm -hmm. buddhist says look life is suffering and it's suffering for everybody mm. nobody gets a free pass yeah um and so you know let me tell you what i have been through and then you tell me your what you have been through and then we can empathize with each other absolutely and, the and trauma should make you more empathetic towards mm. other people's sadly it doesn't do that um with a lot of people but, you know, it certainly did with my grandmother, a Jewish woman marrying a black man and her entire mm. family base, except for her sister, disowning her. You know, she said, I my family, you know, a huge swath of my family just wiped out in the Holocaust. And for her, she said, I can understand this heartbreak. And I'm looking at you and saying, I, I know a small portion of what that feels like. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and Celeste, maybe that's why I fell in love with your, your book, because I, I'm huge into Buddhism as well. And, <laughs> and you talk a lot about, you talk, there's so, there's, there's like an entire chapter dedicated to like, how to keep your chill in these conversations. I'm like, <laughs> well, like, this sounds a lot like, you know, kind of like the meditation and mindfulness practices that I do because yeah, we, we, you know, uh, you know, speaking of Buddhism, like our egos get in the way and, and all these things. And, you know, Something I something I learned in uh, twelve step meetings when I first got sober because it was literally killing me to see the differences in everybody, right? Because and and you know, working in treatment, working with a lot of addicts, a lot of people they get sober, they they come in, and they're like, "Oh, you don't understand. You don't understand my issues, right?" And you know, I had to, I, I you know, after multiple relapses, I had to finally go in there and say, "You know what? Maybe I don't have the exact same experience as this person, but I understand how they feel." Right. And, and I think that's, that's where we need to kind of connect with other people. Like, no, you know, like a Jewish person is going to have different issues than somebody who's, yep. who's black. Right. But 
I get what it feels like to, to feel oppressed, to be looked at as you're different and all these things. And it's like, let's cl- connect there. But something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I'm curious your thoughts, it almost feels like people are coming from a place of fear, right? Like, for example, if we focus on anti-Semitism, then we can't also focus on racism, right? Or if, right. We, f- if we focus on transphobia, we cannot focus on misogyny and sexism. And that's what it feels like. And I'm like, do people not realize that we can care about multiple things? Like we are very, like our brains are pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, you're talking yeah. kind of, we can, we can be worried about quite a few things. Like not only do I care about other people, I care about animals too, you know, like I, I, I care about the well-being of my cats and I care about animal cruelty. So do you, do you kind of notice that as well? Do you think it's this place of fear where people don't think we can care about multiple things? You know, interestingly enough, you'll see examples all through the civil rights movement with um, groups understanding that a rising tide will lift on boats. That um, when you realize that someone is being oppressed and, and abused mm-hmm. and you say this is wrong, it can allow you to look at someone else being oppressed and abused and say, oh, God, it's happening there, too. Let's stamp this out. Mm. And you can sort of expand that to say this is how we think human beings should be treated. This is the kind of dignity every human being has a right to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this idea that there is th- that that there's a fight for civil rights only for trans people um, is it, it's silly. That's not the way civil rights has worked in our history. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of the problem that I have with Chappelle's show is mm-hmm. his sort of pretending like gay people are, are white. What? Mm. <laughs> it's just this odd. But the other thing about it is if you flip it on his head, Dave Chappelle's experience that he talks about as a black man and struggling to fight racism, should he give him more empathy for trans people? The number one most endangered person, statistically speaking, in America um, at risk of of violence and harassment is a black trans woman. Mm. His empathy should expand to include them because he understands what that's like, as opposed to being like, well, you suffer on your own. Screw you. This is not a zero-sum game. And frankly, throughout history, it never has been. And you see this fight over and over. This is one of the things I wrote about in Do Nothing was the global fight to um, bring about the eight-hour workday and how it took people all over the world to achieve that. And in fact, the very first country to to, uh, enact it as a law was in South America, Right. And it's the same thing with civil rights. This has to be a global fight and a global revolution. Yeah, no, I I 1000 percent agree. And, you know, my son's only 12, turning 13 soon. Jeez. But uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, since like since, you know, just he was old enough to understand, like I'm trying to instill in him just a set of values and kind of like what you're talking about is just treat people with dignity and respect. You know, it's it's that golden rule treat people how you would want to be treated. And if we can come from that, that place, now I'm more empathetic towards, towards everybody, the, despite where they come from, where their background and all that stuff. But, you know, it, it does seem like, especially since last year with all the, uh, you know, with the death of not just George Floyd, but, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all these conversations, it seems like, like you said, people are seeing it as this, zero sum game. And, you know, I, I, I write about, you know, wealth inequality and, you know, all these other things. And it's like, yeah, like rising tides, you know, we'll raise all boats. If, if we get equality across the board, right. And we start treating everybody like they're just human beings who are deserving of this stuff. We're all going to benefit from it, you know, and something, something you talk about in the book and you'll explain it a thousand times better than I ever could. When we're getting into these kind of uh, who has a worse conversations and getting in, you know, trying to keep score, you talk about having vertical conversations rather than horizontal ones. Can you kind of explain what that means and the, the kind of conversational strategy behind that? Yeah. So um, a horizontal conversation is um, your typical podcast interview, right? To kind mm. of cover a whole lot of ground. 
Um, and they're going to jump from thing to thing to thing. This is the most common type of conversation about race that I hear other people engage in. They will mm -hmm. start with one particular thing of, oh, did you see that? Let's pick on Dave Chappelle. Did you see the Chappelle show? And mm -hmm. this will begin a conversation on that. And then it'll start touching on, oh, and remember when that other movie back in the 90s and, oh, my dad said this and my uncle said this. And they'll start talking about, oh, and I hate income inequality and it'll it'll range very far mm. um the problem is is that when you start talking about race something so personal and so po possibly volatile mm -hmm. that has so much power to make people feel defensive and angry and emotional mm -hmm. um it's a bad idea to talk in broad terms that's when you start getting into the error of saying, well, those people <laughs> or yeah. blacks like this or Jews like this, et cetera. Um, it's better to dig deep instead of wide. So in order to dig deep, someone's going to tell you something. Oh, this just happened to me. Um, mm -hmm. And you'll and you start to ask questions and you dig deep into that experience. You get the details, you have them walk you through it, how they mm. felt, how what kind of memories that calls up. And you could have a deep conversation that actually could could touch on a lot of different issues, but is about that particular incident, incident, that person and you two specific people having that specific conversation at that point in time. Mm. And that's sort of a vertical conversation, which actually will probably bring you closer to that other person. What you're trying to do is establish empathic bonds with someone else, because none of your data or statistics <laughs> will convince anyone of anything. The only thing that's really going to even have a prayer of changing somebody's mind is an empathic bond with another person. This is why, you know, a lot of feminists get angry when a man says, oh, I, I started to understand feminist issues when I became a dad. Right. Mm. It's super um, triggering for some people. I totally get it on one hand, mm -hmm. um, because obviously you should care about people's rights, whether they're in your family or not. Mm -hmm. Right. On the other hand, <laughs> um, having those kind of empathic bonds is incredibly powerful and it can change people's minds. And there's even research out there showing that judges, even conservative judges who have daughters, end up changing their minds and making more liberal decisions, liberal with a, a, a lowercase l, on mm -hmm. things like um, reproductive rights mm. and, and gender equality and things like that. So, you know, regardless of what you think about it philosophically, just deal with the person in front of you. Go deep and not yeah. blind. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I've really enjoyed this podcast. It's it's one of the reasons just being able to sit and talk. I've, I've had people on, you know, from all, you know, political views and just like their views on different subjects and everything. And I, I'm able to go deep with them, you know, especially a book. That's one of the reasons I love books too. Like the person you, you're giving that person the space to go deep. It's something I'm always recommending to my audience too. It's like, read a book by someone you think you completely disagree with, right? Because yeah. you're allowing that person the space to go through and you're giving them, you know, the room to talk about their background, their history. I believe you mentioned the work of Jonathan Haidt in your mm -hmm. book uh, too. And that's one of the, he was one of the first people who really opened my, my eyes. Yeah. When I read his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, it, it helped me kind of just look at people with different political views and just remembering like, oh, oh, this person might've been raised in this type of household. Oh, this person might've been raised in this part of the country. And, you know, uh, and now I kind of try to give people that space to let me in and see who they are and where they're coming from. And in your book, you, you talk a lot about these conversations and how to have them better. And I am just the, the biggest advocate for curiosity. Right. And yeah. one of my old meditation teachers taught me like the opposite of judge judgment is curiosity. You know, when we're working on ourselves, we learn to not judge our feelings and emotions. We get curious about them. So how, how can people, you know, without developing a full meditation practice, start fostering some curiosity and give people that space to have these deep vertical conversations without interrupting or without judging? What are some places that they could start um you know interestingly enough we we think about curiosity as just a thought process right mm. um or maybe a mood 
but it has a biological function uh, mm. and it has neural underpinnings pinnings inside our, our, our gray matter. Um, and so curiosity is a state of mind that can be tapped into. Mm. If you can learn um, what are the kinds of questions that trigger your curiosity, and these will be particular, particular to you most likely, Mm-hmm. What are the things that that pique your interest and get you into that frame of mind of of being curious about something? Um, if you start thinking of curiosity as a as sort of um, a discipline, like the same way you would be like, okay, I need to focus on this whatever this assignment, this piece I'm writing, this bit of work, mm-hmm. and people start to learn what it takes to make them focus. So I want people to start learning, what does it take to get you into that curious state of mind? Mm. And then you can allow that to run free, right? Like then your neurology and your biology will take over. Mm-hmm. But I, I want people to become aware enough of themselves that they know how to, to dip, get into it and how to get out of it. Because curiosity um, is not just a, a particular type of information seeking. Um, because, you know, it's a special kind of information seeking, right? Um, it's, it's, it's exploration. It sometimes includes play. Um, and, and it generally is very, very tied to our learning curves. Like I, 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 there's some good examples of the fact that curiosity can lead to more learning. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think more than anything else, I just want people to have curiosity as as a something they know how to switch into and and switch out of if they want to, but mm-hmm. b how to foster it and strengthen yeah. it within their minds. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me personally, it took it took kind of the epiphany of just realizing, like, wait a second, Chris, you don't know everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And because I, I used to be that way, and that was when I was like in my twenties, like full blown active addiction. Like nobody could tell me anything. I'm just the smartest person ever. And once I realized, like I don't know any everything. Yeah. Now I'm like, well, what else don't I know? And you know, I've I'm up to like 310 books this year, and it's just because I'm so curious. I, I just I'll be sitting around, I'll just have a question, and you know, a lot of it comes. Uh, you know, into these conversations around, you know, the, the experience of, you know, um, people of color, you know, the experience of women. I've been reading all these books just to understand it. Then I'll bring, you know, I'll bring the authors on the podcast and be like, Hey, teach me a little bit more about that. But like you're saying, it's something that we have to practice too. And just, I, I try to do it every day and just be like, Ask, asking questions, right? Oh, why is it this way? And all that. And, you know, it, interestingly ahead. enough, um, you know, there's, there's a number of qualities that um, we tend to think of as just personality traits mm. that are in fact, just um, uh, either skills or they're just emotions that you can tap into or tap mm. out of. For example, people will say, oh, he's an angry person, right? But no, he's, He's feeling anger and maybe at one moment, maybe yeah. he doesn't know how to control that anger and allows the anger to run loose, but that's a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. He's feeling anger. That doesn't mean that person is an angry person. It's the same thing with curiosity. Yeah. Um, there are no such thing as curious people or not curious people. There's, mm-hmm. there's people who tap into their curiosity more often than those who don't. And, you know, this is one of the things that's really become a theme in a lot of my writing is becoming aware of those things that are not, in fact, talents, innate talents, but skills, Mm. skills that you can learn and practice and develop and encourage and foster and nurture. And curiosity is one of them. Learning is one of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stop thinking of yourself as not a curious person or whatever it may be. Um, Not somebody who reads. It's just a skill. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's actually one of the reasons, you know, uh, why, you know, my, my whole thing is called the rewired soul is just, uh, when I learned that, you know, we can grow when I learned about, uh, neuroplasticity and stuff like that, and that we can learn things and change because, uh, you know, there's even the work of 
Carol Dweck and the growth mindset and just believing that we can learn and change. And these aren't, you know, like when you said, like this person's feeling angry, that doesn't make them an angry person. And, you know, just combining that with curiosity. When I, when I see somebody who's angry, like if somebody's a jerk in line at the store or whatever, I don't see them as an angry person. I'm like, oh, why, why is this person angry? And I start asking questions like, is it possible that they had a really rough morning? Is it possible that something awful happened? You know what I mean? And yeah. getting curious like that, it helps open me up a little bit because we take things so personally. And that, that actually, that leads me to my next question that I've been really curious your thoughts on. And it's, it's this aspect of our, our nature, um, cognitive distortions, right? So this is something that I had to realize a long time ago is that my brain doesn't always take in information correctly, right? I used to be a very angry person. I used to think that everybody was like talking down to me and everything. Then I, I had to take a step back and realize like, wait a second, Chris, you might just be interpreting this wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So I think... I think that sometimes people clash in these conversations about race because, you know, one person is interpreting it as you're, you're calling me a, you know, a, a KKK member, right? And the other person, right, might be interpreting something as racist when it might not be, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I don't want to discount their experience, right? So where do we find that balance where... Even even me being half black, if I were to interpret something as being racist or offensive when it might not have be when it might not be, how can we get past those co those potential cognitive distortions and know what the intent was behind what the person was saying? Yeah, their intent doesn't actually um, matter. Mm. Um, it, it it certainly matters to them if they plan to become a more ethical and anti racist person. Mm. But um, the question is, did it hurt you <laughs> did mm -hmm. it upset you um and that's as far that it needs to go if people care about you and they're using a term that hurts your feelings for whatever reason we have to believe what other people say about themselves mm -hmm. so just as you don't need to um somehow figure out the intent behind the objectionable phrase none of the rest of us need to sort of figure out the intent behind why someone else was upset Mm. that gets you into the territory of you shouldn't be upset about that. Yeah. And that's always going to get you in trouble. So leave intent out of it because there is no way to know and simply ask yourself, is this bothering me? Now, the intensity of your um, emotional reaction to it might guide how intensely you approach them with it, right? Uh, yeah. You know, like I, I put example in the a book of me using the term paddy wagon. Yeah. Which I didn't realize was a very racialized term. Um, and the guy who said it to me said, said it like this. You know what? And I don't know if you know this or not, but that's an actually, that's a pretty racial, racialized term. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the, the energy he put behind it. He put that little energy behind it because he wasn't, you know, it wasn't hurting his feelings that I was using it. He thought I might want to know, and I did. Um, so you should put as much energy and seriousness behind it as the intensity of the emotion you're feeling, but you should always speak up. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, getting into intent is that's sticky. Yeah. And, you know, with that, uh, one of the terms that, you know, I've been, I've been looking for uh, a way to put it into words, you call it uh, wrong spotting, which I'm sure other people already knew about this, but yeah. wrong spotting, if I'm understanding correctly, is like looking for these things so how how do you find the balance between you know intent not being the major issue while also keeping your own wrong spotting in check um so wrong spotting means you're constantly looking for what's wrong in what they're saying mm -hmm. that's different than uh, listening to understand someone and they in use a language piece of language or a term that upsets you. Mm. Um, that's, those are two really different things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if we're having this conversation and I'm, I'm, uh, suddenly you use a, uh, a, an insulting term about Jews, I would have to stop the conversation and say, whoa, okay. 
I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying our conversation, but that term right there, you know, it's, it's a derogatory from germ for Jews. I'm mm-hmm. Jewish. It hurts my feelings. Please don't use it. Yeah. And I, I don't put this on anybody else. If you were to say something about uh, Latino people, Latina, Latinx people, mm-hmm. I would still point it out, but I wouldn't speak for them. I would say, look, that bothers me when you refer to um, uh, uh, somebody from Mexico with that term. Please don't use it. It bothers me. Yeah. I have to keep it very personal and not put this on other people. You know, it's interesting. I'm writing a book right now. It's a very, very short book. I was about to say, geez, another one already. (laughs) No, no, a very short one, which is sort of an addendum on how to talk about sexism. Mm. And and it's really, really common um, to do this sexist thing, which is, hey, let's not use that language in front of the ladies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, which this that's what that problem is. This is like you speaking for women. Yeah. When I swear much more than any male. <laughs> so like, don't speak for me. If that's language is objectionable, you object for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense too, between like the wrong spotting and like interpreting. It almost feels like wrong spotting is this kind of like active thing right where we're actively looking for something where right as when we're calling something out that's more of a passive where we're listening and then we hear it and we're not right we're not exactly. looking for something so so that that definitely makes sense and you know um one of the things uh i i would love to hear a little bit more about because i i feel like i see it a lot you know with uh uh, the polarized media, especially, is you talk about towards the beginning of the book how black people can be racist, gay people can be homophobic, yeah. a woman can be sexist, right? And the way what what I've kind of seen, for example, there'll be a conversation about race or like critical race theory, and Fox News will bring on like uh, a a black person, and they'll be like, I don't find this racist, and then you know Fox <laughs> News is like, see. See, there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So can you, ex- can you explain how that works? Because I, you, you say it in the book, like there's this kind of like instant thing of, no, I am this. So it is impossible for me to be this. So how does, how does this happen? So one thing that's really common is that um, there's different definitions of racist, right? Um, and if you go by the definition of racist as uh, bias plus power, mm. then a black person can't be racist. Mm. I don't use that definition. And the reason I, I, I explain this by saying that if I used that definition, I have nothing to write about, really, yeah. because that would basically excuse everyone who, who says racist stuff, but has doesn't ever take action. To discriminate against somebody else um, is so, who's sort of a passive racist in our system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also doesn't get at the racism that lives inside all of us, sometimes against ourselves. Mm. And I use this example of the kids that were in the, the, the famous um, doll test that the Clarks carried out, which, yeah. which was used in the Brown v. Board of Education um, case. In which, you know, they presented black children with two dolls, one of them white and one of them black. And they would ask them questions like, which one is the good doll? And they'd point to the white one. Which one's the pretty doll? They'd point to the white one. And they'd say, which is the one that looks like you? And almost all of them would point to the black one. And one of the boys said, that's that one. That one looks like that one. That one. That's a nigger like me. Mm -hmm. And of course, that kid is racist, obviously. All of those children were making racist judgments, meaning that they were making judgment about these dolls based on their color alone. Mm -hmm. But they are victims of systemic racism. They are racist, but they are victims of the system. Yeah. But that's still a conversation that we want to have. I don't want my child having those kind of thoughts inside their head. We need to talk it out. Mm -hmm. And so you know, not having conversations about race with your own family, if you're black or Asian or whatever it may be, Latinx, whatever your demographic is, 
those conversations need to be had within your own family as well. If for no other reason that A, yes, you do make biased decisions um, about other people, you know, uh, come on, you're going to tell me that Asians aren't racist against other Asians? If so, you have never been to Asia and you're going to tell me that Latinx people aren't sometimes very racist against black people. Mm. Come on. Yeah. This has to be talked about and it has to be talked out. Honestly, there is no pass that you earn where you're suddenly anti-racist. It is an action. It is a discipline that you have to keep up with every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something I think that's often uh, missed in those conversations is that aspect of, you know, privilege, too, because sometimes I'll see it and, you know, there was somebody who was born, you know, a person of color or, you know, from any kind of marginalized community and they're born into a very like wealthy family or something like that. And they had all the opportunities in the world and be like, yeah, "Yeah, this stuff, this stuff doesn't exist. And, you know, something I had to learn a long time ago was like, just because I have not experienced a widespread issue doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean in any way, shape or form that it doesn't exist. And that, that story that, you know, uh, even of the Brown, uh, Board of Education, uh, it reminded me of the beginning of uh, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt's book. Have you read that, by the way? Bias? Yes, yes. Loved it. Loved it. I read that book. And anytime I hear somebody just talk about, oh, biases don't exist. I'm like, have you read this book? You know, because it's pretty yeah. hard to read all the research she's done in there and and deny that we we have these biases and, and everything like that. But uh, one, one of the final questions I wanted to ask you, too, is kind of what you talk about extensively in the book is this giving people this kind of room to grow and practicing, you know, forgiveness, because something that, you know, I notice, and maybe it's because I'm a recovering addict. I got, you know, 2012, I was a terrible human being. I wasn't there for my son. Uh, you know, I was awful to my friends and family, you know, and yeah. I like to think I'm a pretty decent guy. Now, right. Um, <laughs> so I've, you know, I, aside from my own experience, I've seen many other addicts and just people who get out of prison. Uh, I I've had people on here talking about prison reform and seeing how people can change and grow. But we see these kind of stories pop up of someone who had a, a racist or sexist or whatever tweet or something they said a long time ago, come back up. So where do we find that, that space to say, maybe this person has changed while also I don't know, I guess holding them accountable. Where's that balance so we can practice a little bit more tolerance and, and all of that? I mean, you have to deal with the person who's in front of you right then. Mm. Um, so if you find, discover someone made a racist tweet or statement or whatever it was, then you have to go with them and see, is this who they still are? If they are, then yeah, they need to be held accountable. They need to, especially if they're in any kind of position of power. They need to either change or be removed from a position of power since they've violated the very basis of of trust Mm -hmm. that is required. Um, But you have to figure out where they are now, right? Like when I was in in college, I had really stupid, ignorant ideas about trans people. Mm. Absolutely ignorant and dumb. And um, I took a class called, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but a psychology class. Um, and it sort of opened, started opened my eyes. Certainly didn't, I don't know when I was making moral judgments. I just had, I was dumb and young and yep. stupid. Um, and so if I, if their Twitter had been around at that time, oh, I would have made, oh, cool. <laughs> no yeah, I wouldn't even, I don't really want to think about the hurtful things I would have said about the Terrence community, which I love. Mm-hmm. And so. We, if, I mean, the question becomes, do you believe in redemption or don't you? Why are you bothering to talk to people who are racist if you actually believe that you can't change them, that no one can change? And mm. if there is the possibility for change, then you need to allow people to change. Yeah. Otherwise, what is the possible incentive for a homophobic or transphobic or racist person to change if it doesn't matter? Mm. Exactly. That, that is literally what I think about all the time, because 
I just think back when I got sober. If somebody said, hey, Chris, you're, you're a piece of trash. You're always going to be a piece of trash. You're never going to get better. I'd be like, okay, well, I guess I'll just keep doing drugs. You know? Right. But but yeah, uh, I, I don't know what the solution is because like you said, like Twitter and just social media plays a big role in it. And sometimes I feel like companies might be a little too reactionary and like, oh, oh, we got to get rid of this person rather than kind of like what you're talking about. Well, well, let's, let's, let's maybe put them on a little probation, monitor them for a little bit, see if they have changed. If they haven't, they're out. But if they have, okay, we're going to stand by them. And, you know, because we were all young and dumb. I'm, I'm 36 years old and I, you know, I was, I was probably my, yeah, my twenties, right. When social media really kicked in. But I think about that all the time. I'm like, man, there was stuff. Like if I had my lack of impulse control and social media at my fingertips, it would have been, a nightmare. And I, I try to, I try to think about that. And I also try to, you know, just think like, would I want somebody to think that I can change and I can grow? And when I, when I do that, I kind of calm down a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, let's give this person a little bit of a chance, but, but yeah. So, Celeste, I, I love the book. We were talking about this before uh, we went uh, live, but I have been binging the book. I love it. It is one of the best I've read on the subject. So, so glad for for everybody out there who's dying to read it, uh, this will probably be coming out the, the week of the launch. But can you let everybody know when when is the book coming out? And I always try to ask, will it be released internationally or is it going to be like two phases of release? So I think it's two phases. That gets into the legal agreements that I, I don't know very much about. I mean, I mm. signed them, but... <laughs> yeah. uh, I think the American release, which comes out on November 2nd, comes out on its own, but it, it will be a released internationally. I mean, you will be able to get it. I read the audiobook myself. Mm. Um, and so it will be out November 2nd. But frankly, whenever this gets released, it's it's available for pre-order. And I'm sure you talk to enough authors to know how important pre-orders are. Yep. Um, to authors, they're super important. Um, so yeah, if you want to get the book, just, you know, order it. It's there yeah. for you. Yeah, those pre-orders and the reviews. I try to remind my audience, you finish the book, leave a review. Very helpful. But here's another thing, Celeste, for for keeping up to date with you and knowing when all the releases are and when your new projects come out, where's the best place for people to follow you? I found you on Twitter. Um, I don't know if that's the best place. You have a website. Where should people keep up to date yeah. with your work? I mean, Twitter is fine. I also have a website where I keep a calendar and you can actually look mm. at the calendar because a lot of times I'll do speeches that are are free, um, that where whatever company is paying me has made it free to the public. So um, yeah, I put them into the calendar and they have links there which you can click in case you want to be part of whatever discussions we're having. But yeah, that's those are the two easiest ways. It's just CelesteHeadley.com. Beautiful. Well, I will link all of that down into the description. And Celeste, again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for writing such an important book. And it has been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Celeste. I absolutely love talking with her. You can tell she's a she's a good person who like cares about, you know, having these conversations and getting people to, you know, for lack of better words, like chill out so we can have these conversations. You know, one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, I notice just regularly is that we have to recognize, you know, that there are issues, the extent, the extent of the issues can be, you know, discussed and debated and everything. But if we're flying off the handles, not being able to control our anger, our emotions, all these other things, like none of these conversations are going to happen. We're not going to be able to move forward and come together. And we're just going to stay in this perpetual cycle of polarization and anger and all these other things. And frankly, like some of you have heard in some of my other conversations, you know, when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, wokeness like while these are major issues we also have to recognize like how big they are right because personally you know i i do see how many issues are coming from class divides people not being able to afford just day-to-day -day living and stuff like that but we need to have these conversations about race and all these other things in a mature way so we can calmly find solutions for the other issues to help people, you know, be able to feed their families, pay their bills, go to work and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm super appreciative of Celeste. Make sure you head down to the description, follow her, grab a copy of this book. This isn't just a book about, you know, how we talk about race with one another, but it's also a book on just how to have, you know, difficult conversations with 
anybody and be able to keep your chill while doing so. So make sure you head down to the description, check out those links. And while you're down there, again, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I've been dialing back on some of these episodes, but you won't miss any as long as you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast, whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or whatever. And if you really, 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 really want to help out the podcast in an easy way that doesn't cost you a single penny, make sure that you share these episodes. If you think this episode with Celeste was a good one, if you like any of the episode, other episodes, make sure that you share them with other people. It helps get the word out. It helps with the algorithms. Something else that's really quick and easy to do, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. That really helps the podcast out. All right. But some other ways you could support the podcast, check out in the description. I write uh, books about mental health and all that kind of stuff, addiction recovery. You can check those out at therewiredsoul.com. And there's also an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. And, you know, in the conversation of emotional regulation, therapy has helped me out a ton. So if you want some affordable online therapy that you can do from the comfort of your own home, Check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. You get affordable therapy. A little bit comes back and helps support the podcast. We all win. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Celeste for coming on to chat about her book. Make sure you check that book out. Speaking of race, is out now. And thanks so much for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one. <laughs>